Today's episode of Everybody Hits is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we are here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Hi, and welcome to Everybody Hits, the Athletics Phillies podcast. This obviously is not Bo Wolf. I'm Matt Gelb. Bo is going to take the week off to uh, do some uh, daddy daycare at home. And instead, we are joined by a special guest, uh, one of my competitors and friends, uh, Todd Zalecki from MLB.com. He covers the Phillies, and he is the author of the forthcoming book called Doc, The Life of Roy Halladay. And Todd, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate this. This is uh this is a nice break from my normal day right now at home. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, and like I appreciate you uh sending out this book uh, uh in advance and I was able to get a break from my everyday life too by kind of just diving headfirst into this book, and I finished it in, uh, I think, about three days. And uh, having having watched you sort of work on it, uh, you know, kind of firsthand, I saw you kind of struggling with a lot of it and, and doubting mm-hmm. a lot of it. I mean, what mm-hmm. was it like to <laughs> – you, you, you've, you've had some bad luck with your, with your timing of your book releases just a bit. Yeah, I have had some bad luck with the timing of my book releases, but uh, you know this this was a uh, this was a real tough book to write, obviously, because Roy's no longer with us, and you know the way that he passed away, and and you know how do you kind of tackle that and write about somebody's life without him being there to kind of um, express his own thoughts and words? So I tried to be uh, kind of respectful of that and. I tried to get a hold of as many people as I possibly could. Um, I talked with his his wife Brandy quite a bit, and Roy's dad, and 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 one of his sisters Heather, and just you know former managers, teammates, coaches, scouts, everybody to try to paint this picture of him as as accurate as they possibly could, and kind of like I guess encapsulate the the struggles that he had throughout his life, from you know on the baseball field and off the baseball field, and and. You know, showing that um, you know just because you you struggle, you know, uh, doesn't mean that you know you're a bad person or you're you know that you're a failure of a person. That that you know and these are things that everybody goes through. You know, and um, I hope I kind of captured the essence of that as you know as, as much as I could again without him being there to kind of give his to talk about some of his feelings on it. Yeah, I want to make clear it wasn't bad timing because of. Of Roy's death, but more bad. No, no. Releasing releasing a book during right. a, a oh, global no. pandemic, and and uh, yes, and then also, and then also your your your, your previous book, the rotation, which is a great read for <laughs> any Phillies fan, uh, was was written after the as the 2011 season was happening, and you guys had hoped that that season might lead to something better than a first round exit in the playoffs, but you know, still yeah. a good book, great book, and, and then. And then the and the first I, I wrote a the first book I wrote was called the Good the Bad and the Ugly. Uh, it was just kind of like some 
odds and ends short Philly stories. And that book was supposed to come out uh, in the spring of 2009. But then they the Phillies had just come off the World Series. And they said, I don't know if a title about the Phillies called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly would really <laughs> well right now. So they actually pushed that to 2010. So like, yeah, all three of the books I've written have had some sort of have had some sort of hang up uh, in terms of when they're released. And of course, this is the this is the craziest of them all. So I I will say, um, you know, I, I remember you talking about this, you know, as you were working on it, and I'm curious if you can just kind of, you know, before we delve into some of the some of the issues and some of the the details, and, and I will say there's a lot of details in the book that, you know, having having been around Roy and seeing things, um, and then even you know covering him and writing about him, you know, there's a lot of things in here that I I never knew, and like I'm, I'm you know. It's really cool. cool. It's a it's a great read, but I'm wondering. I mean, a lot of the main characters in this book are, you know, main characters in Halliday's life are are dead. I mean, you know, include you know, you have Roy Halliday, the main uh, character of of the book, but then also Mel Queen and Bus Campbell mm-hmm. and Harvey Dorfman. You know, three people who were instrumental in, you know, who Halliday was as a person and a pitcher uh, are also no longer with us. So, what kind of challenge was it to uh, recreate some of those early years, some of the struggles he had with the Blue Jays, and, and how how did you how did you go about that? Yeah, you know that 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 certainly was a, a big challenge of this because you know you know as well as anybody that Roy always talked about Harvey Dorfman, maybe the most important person of his baseball career. He always talked about the mental struggles he had and and how Harvey helped him overcome that. Mel Queen is the guy that basically changed his delivery in, in Toronto in the minor leagues when they sent him down all the way down to a ball. And, um, you know, those two guys specifically, and then Buzz Campbell was kind of like this pitching guru in Colorado that helped him in his high school years kind of elevate himself from got a really good pitcher, high school pitcher to first round draft pick. And so I, I just, I did a ton, a ton of research. I, I scoured through anything I could find uh, about all three of those people, um, you know, Harvey Mel and Buss. And I, then I, then I tried to talk to as many people as I possibly could about, about those three people. And, and some people I talked to, I didn't even really necessarily even quote in the book, but just to kind of get a truer sense of, of who they were and, and how they impacted Roy. Um, and, and then, and then the other, the, the, I guess the last part of it was, is I talked with, I, I read, I did a lot of research uh, with Roy, a lot of old stories with Roy, obviously, where he, where he talked about those guys. So I just tried to kind of fit those pieces together as, as much as I could to uh, kind of accurately portray how, how, how important they were, um, you know, how important they were uh, in his life and just kind of how they helped shape, shape who he was as a pitcher and as a human being. How many different people did you interview for the book? I mean, the list is pretty exhaustive, is it not? Yeah, I, I think it, I well, I definitely talked to more than a hundred because I, I went through, uh, you know, a few months ago. Just I, you know, I would I would tape all my interviews, and then I of course I downloaded them on my computer so in case something happened to my tape recorder, <laughs> I wouldn't be in trouble. And uh, I ended up counting over a hundred people um, for sure. And then and then it kind of got fuzzy after that because some people some interviews were just short so short I didn't really save them or whatnot. But but it was everybody from. Uh, high school friends, high school teammates, to, to high school uh, opponents, 
um, you know, a lot of people that he grew up with in Denver, knew him in Denver growing up to then, you know, certainly the, uh, you know, the Blue Jays people, the Phillies people, then, then people that he, he kind of worked with after his career, uh, after his baseball career, you know, on the coaching side, et cetera. So there, yeah, it was a lot of people and, you know, and then a lot of people that if I couldn't get on the phone, um, I just, you know, went through and kind of through all the archives, newspaper stories. I, I, I used a lot of your stories, um, in this book because I could easily pull up those inquire uh, archives and uh, you know, kind of re- kind of help me rehash some stories that I had uh, in my head, but I couldn't quite put my finger on. I'm glad somebody read, but no, <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> it's funny because the one guy, the one guy, I think the one guy that you weren't able to get in touch with, you know, was probably a, a fairly important guy. Right. And you were never right. able to get in touch with Carlos Ruiz. Right. <laughs> I was never been uh, yeah. Chooch was one of the hardest people, and it, believe me, I tried several times. I tried through people with the Phillies. I tried with his agent, and Chooch is down in Panama somewhere, and um, he's fine from what I understand. He's healthy and he's fine, but he has just kind of fallen off the face of the earth. And it, in a sense, it made me uh, feel better that I wasn't somehow failing where others succeeded because you know he didn't even make the the 2009 re, uh, NL pennant reunion uh, last year at the ballpark. I wish they, the Phillies had been able to get him up there because then I probably would have been able to talk to him that weekend, but, but no, I was not. So same thing with Chooch though. So I tried to go through old stories and, and old recollections. And then, you know, fortunately Roy talked about him a lot, uh, you know, on the record and in some other interviews I've uncovered uh, that he did with MLB and, and, uh, you know, Tyler Kepner, the New York Times, did a real long interview with him the spring training before he passed away. And, and those things kind of helped fill in the pieces for me a little bit. Yeah, I think I know this is probably not going to happen now, but I think uh, before the world went crazy, I think you were able to guilt Jason Worth into coming back to Philly. You know, they were going to have a reunion at the end of May when they retire uh, Roy's number at Citizens Bank Park. They're going to have a reunion. They wanted to get everyone, as many people as they could from the perfect game back in Philly and, and Worth I think had like a previous obligation or something and I think you, you're like well Car- you know, Chooch is going to even be there and, and Jason was like oh Chooch is going to be there and like I have to be there then right? <laughs> yeah yeah you know it's he's, he's a tough guy to get a hold of and and you know I, I just wanted to talk to Chooch because I, I'm sure you feel the same way is that he was such a for a guy um, you know when he first came up into the big leagues he would use an interpreter because he, he wasn't that comfortable talking to us in English but by the time he got traded, you know, and, and certainly well before that, he was just a really insightful. I thought he was a really insightful guy in terms of the the psyche of a pitcher or a particular sequence during a game, or just kind of putting things into perspective as it as far as the team when the as the Phillies were playing at the time. I, I just really liked talking to him, so I was really bummed out that I couldn't get to, I couldn't get Chooch on the phone. He's he's somewhere down in Panama riding his horses. That's about all I know. So that's a long roundabout way of me saying that, like, even, you know, even without Ruiz and even without the benefit of being able to talk to Roy now or some of the, you know, many of the people who are instrumental in his career. I mean, I'm just I was blown away by the amount of people you were able to talk to, specifically like a lot of his former catchers, uh, a lot of former Mm -hmm. Blue Jays catchers who provided this, you know, this incredible peek into you know how how they acted on the mound how he acted uh behind the scenes and and i I love that stuff and i think uh this is this 
this book is was always going to be complicated. I think you know you've addressed that. Mm-hmm. It was going to be it was a difficult book to write because of everything that happened. And you know, I'll say this: after I finished the book, I finished it late last night, and I I had this this the feeling that I had was I felt I felt sad. I felt so sad for Roy because having getting you know the full picture of his of his of his childhood of these internal battles he had with himself he just he always seemed to be chasing uh this this ideal of perfection that is is impossible to achieve and it and it just seemed like he didn't have anyone around him that was you know vocal or or forceful enough to be like stop and I really, mm-hmm. I just feel like he, you know, I, I he had yeah. a lot to give still to the game, I think. But I, I felt, I felt sorry for him. I felt sorry right. for, you know, how it, how this, how his life ended up. Because you know, as you detail, and I don't know how much you want to get into it, you know, the, the later years of his life, it, there's a lot of it in the book. I mean, he really drove himself into a dark place. He he did, you know, like when he was a kid, um, his dad really pushed him hard. And, you know, you talk to different people and certainly his dad felt like, you know, hey, this is, you know, I was just trying to spend some time with my son and I only pushed him as far as I knew he could take it. But but he really felt a lot of internal pressure as a kid to constantly please people. And he never felt like he was good enough. And then he carried that into the big leagues and then he got sent down to A ball and, you know, he would you know, he told this story many times how he, he joked with his wife at one point about, you know, boy, I, I, if, I, if I could jump off, jump out of my uh, three-story apartment window right now, I would. But my luck is so bad, I'd probably only, only break my leg. I mean, that's kind of what his thoughts were. And, and even when he was super successful, uh, he always felt like, um, you know, he could be a little bit better. And in a sense, that drove him. But then once his baseball career ended, he had this kind of gaping hole. And, and, you know, he was hurt physically. He had, and that, and that, that's kind of the part about the end of his life, which is so sad, is, is he wanted to be great so bad or so much that he really pushed himself hard those last two years. He ended up becoming addicted to painkillers. And, you know, uh, he basically, uh, he had this debilitating back pain. You know, it's not like he was just taking stuff just just to take stuff, but he was like he couldn't sit into a car for more than a half an hour, you know, and um, that pushed him where he became addicted to this stuff, and and then you know mentally he was depressed, and you know that's but but with all that, and that's the part that always intrigued me about him. He was going through all of this stuff, but he he still wanted to try it. He was working hard to get through that. But he also wanted to help people that were struggling like him, which is kind of why he took that mental skills coaching job with the Phillies is because he knew he wasn't alone out there. He knew he wasn't the only person with, you know, anxiety or confidence issues or, you know, self-esteem issues. And and he wanted to help people as much as he could. And, you know, he was starting to kind of pull out of that darkness a little bit, Um, you know, then, then of course he, the, he died in that plane cr- in, the, in the plane crash, uh, but but he was somebody that was always seeking approval, looking for approval. You know, not not always feeling good enough, and it, it's kind of crazy to think because 
you know, you look at this guy, and I, I, I wrote this in the book. He's like six six. He's built like Thor from the Marvel movies. You know, he's just he's got that stare, and he's just so dominant at what he does on the field. But but you know, he always had kind of those those demons he was fighting, and and they just never they just never really went away. No, and 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 now you know rereading you know reading some of the Phillies chapters and my, my first year covering the team my first full year covering the team was 2010 which was Roy's first year with the Phillies and going back and reliving some of those moments and then and then later on in 12 and uh, you know thinking about some of those moments where you know I, I'm sure you're like me Todd I mean like I, I never really feel like I I knew the guy well at all right like, covering him mm-hmm. I mean he was he was such an enigma to cover as a person because he rarely let his guard down and you, and you detail a lot of that in the book. But now when you go back and think about some of those things that we saw, some of those things that he said, especially near the end and you go into that, I mean, this was, this was a man who was not only fighting, you know, a physical injury, but, but mental issues. And then also, uh, uh, you know, substance abuse issues. I mean, he was, right. you know, it appears abusing, you know, painkillers, while he was playing with the Phillies, I mean, and and it affected his it affected his mood, and and you go into this a little bit. I I remember the Charlie thing. I had totally forgotten about that. Yeah. When when the Phillies fired Charlie Manuel, I, I totally forgotten about that. Yeah, he you know Roy was uncharacteristic, and you know we kind of noticed his his speech slowed a little bit that year at times, and and then yeah he he made a rehab start in Lake Lakewood. And somebody talked to him about Ryan Sandberg taking over, and 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 Roy just kind of like, you know, uh, buried Charlie to an extent, saying it was a needed change and whatnot. It was just so out of character for him. Uh, but those 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 chemicals changed the way he thought and acted and and behaved at times. And you know, from the outside, if you don't know him and kind of know his backstory, you go, well, that you know, shame on him. Uh, but he felt like he needed to do that to live up to expectations to continue to pitch. You know, he was, you know, he, he pulled some beat writers aside in Arizona before he had this shoulder surgery in 2013. And he said, you know, I feel like I, I kept pitching because I felt like I owed it to everybody, my teammates, the organization, the fan base. And when you just hear that maybe by itself, you go, oh, okay, whatever. But no, that was that was real. Like he really felt like he needed to push through this back injury, and yeah, and live up to to his salary, even though he really, even though there really was no way that he could do it. But he had to try, and he couldn't not try. Um, you know, and, and the back injury, which I get into in the book. I mean, you know, he had these fractured vertebrae. Basically, you know, the discs in his back had deteriorated. Uh, later in his life, he would tell people that he had shrunk an inch or two because the discs were so compressed. So he really couldn't do much of anything physically, you know, toward the end of his life. You know, he was, he was really he was really broken. And that's and that's why he, you know, but but he but he needed to finish. He needed to finish his contract. And so he pushed yeah. himself past. He pushed himself past the breaking point, which is which he didn't need to do. He, did, he could have walked away earlier, but he, he felt like he couldn't. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, Brandy is quoted, his wife, Brandy, is quoted, you know, saying, like, she wanted him to walk away. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, the, the things that I didn't realize, some of the stuff, you know, some of the stuff I feel like we, we you and I, like, kind of knew, but we didn't know. And that was, you know, game five of the 2011 NLDS, 
you know, which I think will be the greatest game I ever see live. Just just mm-hmm. the, the quality and caliber and the, and the drama and the storylines. But you, you you write about how you know a lot of his injury, you know, a lot of his health problems started in that game, uh, where he essentially right. was never the same after that game, and it was one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen. But there's a passage in 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 this chapter which you've entitled "He's Human," and you know he you write about how he he believed in the Navy SEALs motto, quote, "Suffer in silence." Halliday often watched SEALs videos on flights when he wasn't studying. In Toronto, he once made visors with Suffer in Silence written on the front. He mandated that only the hardest workers in the Blue Jays' weight room get them. And that, like, I don't know, that passage just stuck with me so much. Like, the Suffer in Silence thing, I mean, wow, like, that that was him. Like, that was him to a day. Yeah, yeah he, he, was, he was a warrior, and... and, and Again, like as a you know, people that aren't in professional sports, you know, they they didn't understand why you know why is Roy pitching if his shoulders bothering him? You know, he's he's hurting the team. Well, because he believed he had to muscle through it. He believed he had to he had to grind through it, and uh, you know, he lived by that that mantra that mantra. You know, a suffer in silence. He just believed that that's something that he needed to do, and uh, he had overcome other health issues before. You know, he uh, you know he. he blown you know hamstrings groins you know he had shattered his leg you know he almost came back from that in like the 2005 season a line drive snapped his leg in two basically his his shin bone in two and he was trying to come back within three weeks he came back in three to four weeks from an emergency appendectomy when he was with the blue jays i mean he did all of these amazing incredible things and so i i think he just felt like this is one other thing that i could overcome but but he could not overcome he he could not overcome the back injury right so i don't want to focus everything on on you know the the dark times because it, it is mm-hmm. the whole book and it's not you know it's a major part of the book and it's a major part of Roy's story but there's a couple different things i wanted to without you know you know without uh, spoiling the whole book but there's a couple little things i want to ask you about and one of them is you have uh you you you're able you tried what i loved i think this might be my favorite part of the book is where you tried to sort of recreate the his in between start routine between yeah. his start before the perfect game and then the perfect game. And this was late May, 2010. And one of the things right. you did, uh, you, you, you got, you have notes that he took yeah. on specific hitters. And yeah, I think I know where you got them from, but I want you to so say you have uh, <laughs> Freddie Freeman and Brian mm-hmm. McCann, you know, these are Roy's notes and it's basically his attack plan against these hitters. And you actually talked to Freddie Freeman about yeah, I'm guessing you showed him the 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 little blurb right. and asked him to break it down. But so he, had he he had digitized or Kevin Camisholi had digitized these mm-hmm. notes or what? How'd you how'd you get these notes yeah. and like how cool was that? It was awesome. So um, you know Kevin Camisholi, you know Roy was everybody knew that Roy had these notebooks. It was kind of part of his you know the lore of Roy Halladay, right? Like he he had all these notebooks and he would update you know, little things that he picked up on hitters. And before every start, he would go through these notebooks. Well, Kevin Camasholi is the, the video coordinator for the Phillies. He's the guy that, you know, will pull up video for hitters and kind of works with the hitters and the pitchers uh, as they prepare for for different games. And Kevin Camasholi saw how much Roy, how hard he worked. And and Kevin Camasholi went up to him one day and said, hey, you know, um, I can, I can put, I can digitize these for you. I could type them in and, 
And then, you know, when you, after every start, you could give me updates and I could, I could update them for you or whatever. That way you could just pull them up on your iPad. And, uh, and, and, and fortunately for me, Kevin had a couple. I said, if you could pass along any, please do. And uh, he did. So he passed along these notes uh, from a start that he had against the Braves. I think it was in July of 2011, if my memory serves me right. But it was, it was you know, during his peak year. So it was, well, let me put it this way. It was in Freddie Freeman's rookie season. And so um, I, I, I printed it out and I walked over to the Braves clubhouse one day. And and I went up to Freddie and I said, hey, you know, Roy Halladay was famous for keeping these notes. Would you would you like to see him? See what he had about you? And he loved it. He was super excited to see it. He thought it was so cool, you know, because he's a Hall of Famer and he's a legend. And 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 Freddie was a rookie at the time. And he's like, it's just amazing that I was a rookie. He could have just like treated me like some schlub. And he took the time to like make detailed notes about how to how to pitch me. And he laughed because those notes were dead on for him at the time. Now, he said that he's changed a little bit since then. So he's like, if he would pitch me like that today, I would crush him. But <laughs> at, the time, at the time, that's how that's how he should have pitched me. And he's, you know, his, his – I remember Freddie saying, you know, the one thing he wishes that he would have – is that he wished he could have faced Roy Moore in his peak years. Because he really only got like one good year of Roy, and then the like next next two he was on the downside. But um, he he was he was incredibly impressed with him, and he loved the fact that Roy pitched with purpose. Now, one of the interesting things that he said, which I I, I used in the book, is that he said, you know, if a starting pitcher goes out and throws a hundred pitches, like most pitchers nowadays, like thirty pitchers are just a ball straight out of the hand, like it's just a wasted pitch. He's like Roy made every pitch competitive. You know, he just made really made everybody work from the first pitch to the last pitch, which I which was which was his goal. You know, like he he uh, he did not waste a pitch. He wanted to get his idea of a perfect game. Him and Harvey Dorfman talked about this. Is was twenty seven pitches and twenty seven outs, and that's what he tried to do every time he pitched. So there's one other passage that I love, and it was in the it was in the same chapter where you're you know in between starts here, and you say, I want to know how you how you recreated this. I think this is so cool. I'll read it here just real quick. Halliday studied mm-hmm. on the plane too. The Phillies flew to Miami from New York on May 27th. Most teammates watched movies, played cards, or slept. Halliday had two iPads and his notebooks spread across the tray tables in front of him. The iPad on the left had each hitter's last 20 plate appearances against right-handed pitchers. The iPad on the right had Halliday's last 10 plate appearances against each hitter's. The dueling screens allowed him to study how each hitter approached right-handers most recently and how he attacked them most recently. If a hitter moved closer to the plate since the last time he faced him, he knew it and he adjusted. Like, I mean, that yeah. is incredible detail. Yeah. And, and I and just, I love that. Yeah. And, and that was, uh, that was Chad Durbin. I, I, I talked with him, um, when the O nine team came in last year, uh, last summer. And I just said, Hey, you know, uh, do you have any good Roy Halladay stories? And, and Chad, as you know, he's like one of the smartest baseball people out there, just a really, you know, uh, really smart guy. And he told this, story, he basically just described it that way. He's like, I would sit behind Roy on almost every flight. He's like, because we had similar pitches. You know, I threw a cutter, sinker, changeup, breaking ball. He's like, my stuff was nowhere near as good as Roy's, but um, but I knew because he we threw the same type of pitches, 
that if I sat behind him and just kind of watched, I could maybe ask him some questions on the plane or I could ask him some questions in the outfield the next day. And he would basically scout guys for me. So he said if he <laughs> if it, see, so he's, he would say like in between starts, if Roy wasn't pitching, he would um, go up to Roy and say, hey, you know, uh, I haven't seen this guy in a while. And Roy would say, well, I just watched his last 10 at-bats. Uh, here's what he's doing right now. Here's what you should do. And the, and the detail I thought was just amazing because – you know, you think about pitchers talking or scouting reports and you say, all right, well, sinker's away to this guy or, you know, you know, keep the change up down or whatever, right? But but Roy would be so detailed. It wouldn't just be like throw a cutter in. It was throw a cutter two balls above the belt. It would be, I want this sinker to have a little bit, bit more bite to it. Or if it was another hitter, it might be, I want to take a little bit less sink off the ball and have it come in a little bit straighter and harder. And, and those are the types of things that he could do with the baseball, and that's how detailed he got, and that's, and that's one of the reasons why he, why he was so great. So, so I think what I appreciate about the book is, and the way you approach it is that, you know, in a lot of ways, I think you mimic that detail, I mean, that he put into, you know, his craft. Like, I, I just, I love the detail in some of this. And I, and I remember, I remember you, you know, you, uh, you would have like a fixation, like over the process of writing this book, you would be like mm. trying to focus on a certain person or a certain event or something. Mm. And I remember that Bobby Higginson was like a guy that <laughs> you, you, you really wanted to talk to because he broke up Roy's near no hitter. It was at his second start in the big leagues, right? And, yeah, it was the second start in the uh, big leagues, yeah. Yeah, and you had trouble finding Bobby Higginson. And then I'm reading the book uh, you know, a couple days ago. It's early in the book. And there's Bobby Higginson. You got him, and like that really paid off, right? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 he, was, he was great. So, like, you know, Bobby Higginson's a Northeast Philly guy. He went to Temple. And, yeah, so, so Roy had this no-hitter going in his second big league start, two outs, bottom, you know, uh, top of the ninth inning, final game of the season. Uh, the 98 season and Bobby Higginson comes to play and hits a first pitch fastball away uh, for an opposite field home run. And I was like, you know, I had read all these stories. I did so much research on this. I talked to his catcher that day, um, you know, Kevin Brown and, and, you know, some of the other players that were in that game. I talked with Gabe Kapler who played in that game. Didn't remember anything about it. <laughs> um, but I was like, I got to talk to Bobby Higginson. And uh, Ed Hayes is a kind of lawyer slash agent that lives in the Philadelphia area, and he was he was Bobby's guy. So Ed put me in contact with him, uh, and, and Bobby was fantastic. Basically said that, you know, my manager told me I wasn't playing the next day. Toronto's a great town. I hit it pretty hard that night. <laughs> Showed up the next day, basically in, insinuating I was a little hungover. You know, wasn't really ready to play. He said he took no hacks in the cage. Um, cause he figured he couldn't do any worse than his, than his, his teammates had to that point. And uh, as he got into the plate, the umpire basically told him, you know, swinging anything close. Cause I, I haven't called a no hitter before. And I want to know, I want to be, uh, I want to be behind the plate for a no hitter. And so he's like, okay. And, um, they, they, before the game, uh, Roy and the catcher, Kevin Brown said, all right, if we face Higginson fastball down and away, cause he was a pull hitter. Couldn't could anything the opposite failed. They did it, but Bobby was ready for it, poked one out, and hit a home run. <laughs> but it was great because because Bobby had kind of like this Northeast Philly, like, you know, I'm gonna tell like it is attitude. And I thought it was just that was just kind of a fun little fun little passage in the book, just the way he kind of described his attitude coming into the game, his attitude walking up to the plate, 
And then he said when he returned to the dugout, he said, I don't know what you guys are talking about. He's not that good. <laughs> That's great. And there's, there's just yeah. so many little, like, the, and I love that Enya is a repeating, uh, like, sort of thing in this book. We learned that Roy Halliday listened to Enya. Often yeah before his starts which is that's a that's a that's not something i would have expected yeah you, you know it, it, uh dong lean who's the uh, philly strength and conditioning coordinator um i ha- had a real nice i talked with him a bunch of times uh, about roy and that was one of the details he mentioned i said you know what do you remember about him before starts and he mentioned this Enya thing and i was just fascinated by it just because yeah you think like guys would be listening to hard heavy metal music and but if you, the more you, I got to know Roy, so much of Roy was being focused and calm and cool and collected. And so to listen to this really soothing Enya music, right, it just kind of fit because he didn't want to go out there like a raging bull. He wanted to go out there totally calm, totally relaxed, and almost have his mind on autopilot. And, th- and that's kind of what he did. And then I asked Brandy about that later, just to kind of confirm, like, you know, I, hey, I heard he listened to a lot of Enya before his starts. And she's like, oh, yeah, he loved Enya. He would listen to it all the time before he pitched. And so I was like, wow, that that to me is a little interesting trait. But you're right, right? Like, you don't think of Roy Halladay or anybody really listening to, like, this soft kind of – I don't even know how you describe that music – uh, you know, you think of like oh, he's going to listen to Metallica or some hardcore rap music or whatever, but but that was not him. Well, I want to kind of wrap it up with this. I mean, I, I don't you know, I, I like the way you wrote the book for a lot of reasons, but I think one of them is that, you know, you're, you're going to let the reader decide, um, you know, how they feel about a lot of this. And I think. You know, my my biggest conclusion. You know, I I, I dog eared this last page where um, you 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 have um, this is him this is him uh, telling this is him talking to Philly's prospects, and you know one of the things he said in this speech uh, that he gave this talk was you know what's the price you guys are willing to pay to have a chance in the big leagues to win the big league level to be an all star to have a long career. And I kept coming back to the his those are Roy's words, and mm-hmm. you know I mean he he paid uh, a really high price. I mean he was one of if not the best pitchers of his generation. He was incredible to watch. He made a lot of people happy on the field, uh, but he paid he paid a a a big price. And you know I, he is such a complicated legacy that he has. You know. Off the field, on the field, we know what his legacy is. I mean, he was incredible pitcher, incredible. But you just you you start to learn about the person. You're just, I mean, you just can't help but wonder, like, you know, how high of you know that price was that he paid. Yeah, like you know, if he if he hadn't been pushed so hard as a kid, and if he didn't have all that self doubt and, and confidence issues and anxiety issues, you know, would he have pushed himself to? to be as great as he was, I, you know, I don't know. I know I talked with his sister, Heather, and she said, you know, was it, was it worth it? You know, um, in the end, she's like, he had, he had a great career and, you know, he enjoyed that part of it, but, but yeah, it did come at the ultimate price. Um, and, and yeah, so I, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Cause I did, I did want people to kind of make up their own mind about him. Um, and, and, and his legacy and his career and his life. Um, but it, you know, he, he definitely was at the end of his life. He was trying to get things turned around and, and, uh, you know, tragically it, he, he did not, he did not, but, um, 
you know, he was always trying to, he, he thought it was a problem that he could, he could fix or, 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 or lick like, like everything else, everything else in life. But, um, you know, it was, uh, a, a very sad ending, but a very fascinating, fascinating life. No, and, and and I think there's a lot of lessons from from his preparation, from his life, from everything about it. So, uh, tell us when does a book come out, and when does it hit, uh, where, and, and where can you get it? And and uh, I know these are crazy times, but actually, like I don't know, yeah. I mean, it's a it's it is a it is a you know we miss baseball, and this is a I think this is a great way for yeah. you know to get your fix. Yeah. So so the the actual if you want to buy the kick it old school and get the uh, hardcover copy it's it's available beginning may 19th so I, I imagine the way things are going hopefully maybe bookstores will be open by then but if not you can certainly get it on amazon or barnes and noble or you know anywhere you can buy a book online it'll it'll be available and then um, i believe the e-reader will be a little bit earlier uh available before that like may 5th or something so you know may may basically is when is the drop date and um you know, I hope people I hope people like it and thanks thanks again for having me on and I'm I'm very happy that you liked it because uh you know you're uh you're one of the best writers in the biz so I, I appreciate you saying all the all the kind words and and, and you liking it no don't, don't stop that that's ridiculous but <laughs> I, I, I mean I, I I gotta say like I mean I just you know it, this is this is this is a tough this is a tough book and I think you I, I really think you I think you nailed it and and I think Thank a lot of people are gonna are gonna learn things that uh, you know that they didn't know about this guy. Thanks, I appreciate that, Matt. Thanks, Todd, for joining us. Everybody, buy the book. And in the meantime, while we wait for Todd's book to come out, uh, we we want to give uh, a little shout out to some local businesses that uh, you know think deserve our attention in these trying times. And everybody has their favorite places that they want to support and. Uh, it's been great to see that outpouring of support, and the one that I will bring to your attention is a little Philly business called Hog Island Press, and Mark over there has been designing shirts and cool prints uh, that are Philly-centric for the last few years. He has some of uh, my favorite Philly t-shirts, and some of them are, are Philly's broadcaster-related. Uh, he has a Larry Anderson shirt, a Scott Fransky shirt. One of my favorite shirts that he has, I'm actually wearing it right now. It's called uh, Hoagie Boats, and it's a image of uh, Hall & Oates rowing a boat that is made out of a hoagie. And uh, Mark has made a special shirt for these weird times. He's called it High Hopes. And uh, it's important to support local artists, uh, you know, in these trying times. I think uh, there are a lot of industries that are being affected right now, but we can't forget uh, our local artists, and I would highly recommend you check out Hog Island Press. Mark is a cool dude. He makes some fun stuff. Their website is hogislandpress.com. Check them out. Thank you for listening. It's been a cool podcast. We will talk to you soon. Bo will be back next week. I may or may not be back. Depends on life. Everybody stay safe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>